Book of Exodus is a story of God producing a people. Yeah, you guys are remembering. I'm just going to keep saying it. All the leadership gurus say that just about the time you get tired of saying something is just about the time people start getting it. So I'm tired of saying it, but I'm going to push through on your, for your behalf, your benefit, right? And uh, I keep re reminding you of that because if we desire to become a people of God, then this is a great example to us of what it looks like to become a people of God. If we feel like we're on that journey somewhere, if we're somewhere in our story of becoming a people of God, then the example that God has set for us in the scriptures is really valuable. We could see the values, the habits, the practices, the mindsets, the priorities that God built into his people the first time he built the people of God. And many of those will translate, if not all of the habits and values behind those ideas, will translate to us becoming the people of God in 2023. So... I'm going to keep reminding you of that as we go through. Uh, God is laying clearly out for us in the book of Exodus, in the book, the history of Exodus, uh, what he's building into the lives of his people. Now, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 13 this morning. And this is pretty exciting for us because it feels like we're finally getting some movement here. Okay? We spent a couple months, literally three months. Now, there was Christmas services in there and stuff. But... We've spent about three months talking about the plagues of Egypt. I don't know about you, but it kind of felt like we were stuck in our story. Did anybody else feel that? Like we just kept, no, you're like, very nice. We don't ever say we're stuck in the word of God, Jared. That's very bad. He might smite us. Okay, don't raise your hand. But it kind of felt like we were doing this a lot of the same thing. We would start in the same spot and we'd end in the same spot and Pharaoh would be like, no, I'm mad. And Moses would be like, let my people go. And Pharaoh would be like, okay, I'm sorry. And then he'd be like, harden his heart. We're just doing the circle thing. And, and it kind of felt like we were stuck in this, like we knew because we were moving through chapters, we were getting somewhere. But I bet if you were living through it, you really felt stuck. I know I even as a pastor felt stuck. Like Monday morning, I'm like, okay, what are we going to And I'm like, another, like, let my people go. No, here's a plague. Okay, you can go. Oh, no, you can't go hard and hard. And we, we ended almost every study for the last three months exactly where we started every study. People of Israel in slavery in Egypt, literally not any closer to being free. From like no observable evidence, no observable progress, no measurable progress, nothing they could point to and be like, we're getting closer, guys. Nothing. They, I'm sure they felt stuck. I felt stuck reading about it. They probably really felt stuck living through it. You know, I'm not going to get to heaven. And Moses is like, oh, Jared, I'm really sorry that you felt stuck having to teach through the plagues. I lived it, Jared. Like, I mean, just preaching through it, if you feel stuck, like, Having to live through it would have been exhausting and frustrating and hard. And, and I'm not saying bored, okay? I'm not saying it wasn't valuable, right? But I did feel like the story was a little stuck. And if you and I felt stuck as we were reading through it, imagine how the people of Israel felt going through these plagues. Like, is God doing something? Yeah. And every time he does something, we're still in slavery. And wow, that was amazing. And we're back where we started. And we just kind of keep coming to this place back and over and over and over. And I hope you realize that this is such a gift in the account of the people of God. Because here's what just happened. We just spent, went through eight chapters, five months, okay? Eight chapters, if you take one plague at a time, it didn't feel like much progress was happening. 
we basically did one plague. Sometimes we had to split up plagues into two, but mostly we did one plague per week as we were going through. And if you just, wow, every week we end up right back where we started. Every week we went through the same cycle right back. No steady growth, no measurable progress, no observable movement. But the people of God were not stuck. And it wasn't like God wasn't moving. It wasn't like he wasn't doing anything. But plague after plague was happening. They were watching it and they probably felt stuck. At the end of every one, they come back to the same spot. So here's why I call this a wonderful gift. Sometimes the people of God go through seasons where it feels like you're stuck. It's not unnormal, like it's not unnatural, right? We, there's a lie that we all believe that if I am doing it right, I'll never feel stuck. That's not from God. It's in the, like the story of the people who got built into this is probably a long period of time, Exodus chapter five through 13, eight chapters that we just read through where they probably felt very stuck, like no progress was being made. And that's from God. God is working on their behalf. God is bringing them out of slavery. God is doing amazing things in them. They probably just felt stuck at the time. And so when you hear that lie of like, oh, if I'm really following God, I won't ever feel stuck. That's, that's just not true. That's not even what we read in the Bible. The normal part of the way God operates with his people is that there are seasons where sometimes we feel stuck. Seasons where sometimes we don't feel like we're making as much progress as we wish or hoped, or I wish I had some more observable evidence that we're moving along the right path. And it's a normal part of the way God works in the lives of his people. And here's what happens. You believe that lie that if, I was, if God was really working in my life, then I would not feel stuck. And you become to church and you're like, uh, I got to pretend like I'm not stuck, right? Because nobody else here feels stuck. And you need to know something about the people you go to church with. They're liars. All of them. They're getting better, but they're liars too. And just like they walk in and like, I feel like a pressure to not feel stuck. You feel the pressure to not feel stuck. So we all come to church and we're like, how you doing? Great. Really good. Right? Because I don't want to tell you that I feel stuck and you don't want to tell me that you feel stuck. And so we just high five and pretend like it's all perfect. But what you need to know about the people of God is that it's very common and part of almost every story that you read of God working in people where they go through a season of life where they feel stuck or go through a long season where they don't feel like they're making progress. They go through a long season where they don't feel like they're getting closer to what they hoped to get closer to. Now, I do want to throw a footnote in here. Sometimes you get stuck because you're stupid and you make bad choices, okay? And you won't be able to move on until you start being obedient to the Holy Spirit. Some of you need to hear that. But here in Exodus chapter 13, it wasn't because of disobedience, okay? It was just how long God decided this was going to take. And they felt stuck for a while, I'm sure. And they woke up on the morning of when Exodus chapter 13 was written. And guess what? They're unstuck. That's it. It's just like, we're stuck for a while. And then they wake up one day and it's like, we're not stuck anymore. Now there's going to be some fear. They're going to have to step out in faith. There's going to be some new challenges, right? They're going to have to let go of some comforts that they had, even though back behind them was really painful and hard. There was some, some understanding of the way life was and comforts in it. But as they step into Exodus chapter 13, they're going to be unstuck and they're going to move forward in a very real way. So let's jump in. Exodus chapter 13, starting verse 1. Like I said, it's page 32 in the left-hand column there. 
It says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and a beast is mine. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with your, within all your territory. Verse 8, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign in your hand, as a, more, more, as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For the strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you do not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among you shall be redeemed. You shall redeem. And when in, time you come to, when in time to come, your sons ask you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeemed. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Okay, so we've been paying special attention as we've been going through of the values that Yahweh is building into the life of his people. What does it look like to be the people of God? There's some very clear values and priorities and habits that he builds into the life of his people. And here we have an interesting set of values built in the life of people. And they're like opposite values. We would call them complementary values. Like they're going in opposite directions. First, we have this call to remember. I, I realize I read a very long passage of scripture. It's going to all make sense when we look at it from kind of a zoomed out point of view. The first, we have this call to remember, to consecrate the firstborn, remember the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and this is the first month of the year for you people from now on. Okay, so we have this first call to remember. And we've talked about this quite a bit, how the people of God are to, the, to be the people who remember well. That's, it's not just like optional. It's like, no, if you are a person of God, you are called to remember. It's, it's built into your values and habits. And remembering is kind of this looking back process, right? When we remember, we're kind of thinking backwards. We're kind of looking over our shoulder, we're like, remember what happened? Now, then God also builds into his people this hope that is in front of them. Look at verse five. In verse five, God is reminding them of the land he has promised to bring them into. And there's great hope in this land. It's a good land. It's worth daydreaming about and getting excited for. And this idea of living according to the promise of God is the idea of God giving us a hope for our future and direction for our future. And this future hope is definitely where? It's in front of us. So, so there's two things. There's this kind of backwards direction and this kind of in front direction. 
So being the people of God has both this kind of rearward component and this frontward component. We have a past and a future. We look backwards and forwards at the same time. Now, why would we do that? Why would we look back and forward at the same time? Why would God call his people to remember the past and also have a hope for the future? It turns out that God calls his people to look backward and forward for the same exact reason. When people remember as they are called to remember, then we live today differently. When people believe the promises of God for their future hope, they also then live today differently. You get that? When you look back, then this moment in time changes. When you look forward, this moment in time also changes. The whole point is that both things are causing you to live today differently than you would have lived it if you weren't remembering or having a hope for the future. Today is a gift. That's why they call it a present. Kung Fu Panda. Anyway, there's a bit of a pattern here, okay? And it points out what I'm talking about. If you read through the chapters, we have verses one through four that are looking back, okay? And the verses five through eight are looking forward. And it's not just the promised land. Think about what is going through these people's mind when they read verse eight. When your son comes to you, it says, you shall tell your son on that day is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. You tell a slave that they're going to say, like, your son's going to come to you and be like, why do we do this? Right? If you tell a slave that, what is a slave thinking? You mean I'm going to have sons that have no recollection of bondage and slavery? Like you mean that there's a day in my future where I'm going to have to explain to my son what it means to be in bondage? Like he's not going to know anything about making bricks. He's not going to go anything about forced labor. He's not going to go anything about taskmasters and beatings and quotas and, and his baby brother being thrown into the Nile River because they're worried about our population growth and like murdering our children. There's going to be a day when I'm going to have a child that will know nothing of that. Woo! Hallelujah, right? So there's some hope for the future built in there. And then we have the pattern again, okay? End of verse 9 and verse 10, remembering the past. So we're doing the same thing. Looking back, then verses 11 through 15, look into the future. And then the son that we talk about makes another appearance again. And then he repeats this weird thing. He says it first in verse 9, and then he says it again in verse 16. Look at verse 9. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. So just in case you didn't understand the pattern, here's what happened. He talked about the future. No, he talked about the past. Then he talked about the future. Then in verse 9, he talks about the present, this present tense where he says, and it shall be as a sign on your hand, as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord be in your mouth. Then he does it again. Verse 9 and 10, past. Verses 11 through 15, future. And then he comes back to the present and repeats this kind of weird thing. Verse 16, it shall be as a mark on your hand or between your eyes. So just to recap, I know I've said it a whole bunch of times, but you need to get it. Remember the past, have hope for the future, sign on your hand, mark between your eyes. Okay, back to the past, back to the future, sign on your hand, mark between your eyes. Okay, so remembering and the hopefulness of the future, remembering the past and the hopefulness of the future changes how you live presently. And how does it change how you live presently? He said, it will be as if you had a sign on your hand, verse 9, and a mark between your eyes. Okay, 
If you had a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes, who would be able to tell? Everyone. Everyone you talk to. We're like, you have a sign attached to your hand. It's like a stop sign. It's like, I don't know what kind of sign. It's just a, right? There's a sign on your hand and something between your eyes. Everyone would be able to tell. Every single person that you encountered during the day would be able to tell. That's what the point of this verse is. Okay? Now, the Orthodox Jewish community has taken this very literally, right? And they actually put something on their hand and something between their eyes. They're called phylacteries, and they're these little leather boxes. And they, they roll up little pieces of scripture, and they put them in the little box, and they take leather straps, and they wrap them around their arm and tie them to their hand, and they strap one to their head, and they literally tie a little box on their head and when they pray. And they're like, we're just doing the scripture. And I was like, eh, it says as a sign to you, but whatever, you know, go with it, right? Uh, <laughs> do I have time? Sure, I got time. Okay, so I was flying to Israel one time uh, on a trip to Israel. If you can ever go to Israel, it's an incredible trip. And so we were flying over there and we were flying on El Al Airlines, which is the Jewish national airline. So all the Orthodox Jews fly on El Al. So we landed in uh, New York. We've switched to El Al Airlines. We're leaving New York at like midnight, okay? So we get on the plane, it's dark, everybody's tired. The plane gets up in the air, everybody shuts their windows like they tell you to and falls asleep because it's midnight. And well, the Orthodox Jews, many of them, uh, need to be praying when the sun comes up, okay? So if you're an Orthodox Jew, you know this. And wherever you're at in the world, you're kind of paying attention to when the sun rises so you can be up honoring God so he doesn't smite you when the sun comes up and you're not praying. So it's like a big deal to them. Well, when you're on a plane flying east towards the sun, it's pretty hard to gauge when the sun's going to come up. And so we're all sitting there and like my body was just not designed to sleep on a plane, right? Like the length of it is a bad fit. So I'm like not sleeping very well and I'm like tossing and turning. And then there's like a guy in front of me that had like some movement and I don't know where in the world we were over what part of the ocean, what time it was or anything. I'm trying to sleep. But the guy like cracks his window and there's this little tiny orange beam of sunlight that came through the cabin, right? I remember just being like, oh, I can't sleep. And this guy, burp, and I was like, oh, there's light out. And it was like, everybody in the place was like, the sun's up. And it was like, like hundreds of people, men standing up, jumping around, getting into their luggage, like getting their things. Like they're all like, oh no, God's going to kill us all. It was like, we missed it. And they're all like putting the boxes on their heads and they all got hats and like shawls and like cloaks. And they're all just like, let's go. Like, and it was chaos, absolute chaos. Like there's no sleeping in it, but they're all freaking out because they missed the sunrise, right? Because it was, it was really great. But that I tell that story to tell you, like, nobody in there was like, are you Jewish? Yeah, they're freaking out. And they're tying this thing to their arm and they're tying the thing to their head. Everybody could tell. Everybody could tell. And that's the point. Okay, that's the point of the pattern here that is remembered twice. Remembering of the past and the hope for the future should change how we live the present. And it should change it in such a way that everybody could tell. Everybody could tell. Right? If people are living in this world and they come across you, they should be like, something else. There's some, there's, it's, your life is so different. It's like you got a mark between your eyes and like something stuck to your hand. Like that's how obvious it is that your life is different. 
And I want to point this out. The Christian church, okay, um, let me back up a little bit. The Christian church has interpreted this as a difference in your life, not as like a really like a leather box on your hand. But I actually applaud them for like, no, let's, 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 let's make it as obvious as possible, right? We get in a world where it's like, let's be the same as possible, right? That's kind of how we, it's like, how much do we have to give up? Like, how different do we have to be? Do we have to be weird different? Because weird different is uncomfortable, right? Can I not be weird different? Can I be the same different? The same different doesn't make any sense, right? Think about the prayers you pray and the questions you ask. And when it comes up of like, do I need this in my life? Do I not need this in my life? Am I make this decision? Do I not make this? I'm not going to like guilt trip the heck out of you, but I'm going to say, are you more concerned about being the same or are you more concerned about being different? Now, I get it. There's some real weirdos out there who are different just to be different. They're like, we only make our own handmade clothes because God wants us to be different. I was like, you look weird. But hey, if that's out of a conviction from the Holy Spirit, I'd actually say, good good job. Like, I'll never wear it, but good job for you. Okay. If that's really what God has put in your heart, like we need to be different. Like, let's ask that question. How can we live this differently? And applause to all of you. You got up in the snow and came to church on a Sunday where there's a ton of people who are like, I'm sleeping in. So pat yourself on the back or then the person next to you. Well done. That's different. That's way different. Now, I want to point this last thing out before we move on that you are doing the activity of remembering is important, that your life is changing in the present is important, but what you are remembering to change your life in the present is also important, okay? We kind of live in a culture where it's like, just remember it. It doesn't matter how you remember it, right? And so now 4th of July is not really about celebrating freedom. It's just about getting drunk and eating hot dogs, right? And watching things explode in the air that were made in China. Like, I never felt so more patriotic watching Chinese handiwork, right? Like, so, like, I'm not making anybody feel bad, but we've just kind of decided that 4th of July is just something you remember. Remember it how you want to. The people of God, not only should you remember, but you should remember in the way that God called you to remember so that you remember the correct things. And the question is why? Well, it says in verse 14, when your kids ask you, why you're remembering, you tell them this, because the Lord brought the firstborn out of Egypt. Is that what it says? Look at verse 14. Because the Lord, we're sacrificing the firstborn. Why? Because just the firstborn were saved by God. Is that what it says? No. It says this, because the Lord brought us out of Egypt. All of us. So he built this thing into their lives where they did this. Every firstborn that opened the womb, they killed it. And if you didn't want to kill it, then you did this thing called redeeming, right? Where you would sacrifice a lamb on behalf of the thing that should have died and the lamb would die in the place of the firstborn so you could keep the firstborn and the lamb would die in its place. Pretty powerful picture, right? Pointing to Jesus coming up. But let's go back to this, okay? So you had a firstborn son. You could kill your firstborn son if you wanted to. I wouldn't recommend it. God here says, actually kill a lamb in his place so that you redeem your firstborn son. Why would you redeem the firstborn son? Well, the firstborn son is God's, Jared. That makes very much sense. False. It doesn't say God brought the firstborn out of Egypt. It says God brought all of us out of Egypt. 
So every single person who is living in freedom is living in freedom because God brought them out. It's not just the firstborn who are living in freedom. It is all the people who are living in freedom. The sign with the firstborn is just a reminder that we all have freedom because of what God did. Okay? And this isn't the first time. There's lots of times in the scripture, well, a few times in the scripture, where God calls you to make a sign with the first of something to remind you that the rest of it is because he gave it to you. Okay? So with finances, he'd be like, take the first tenth of your finances, you give it to me, you keep the rest as a reminder that it's also mine and I let you have it right? The first fruit of the field, right? Here's the crops. You give the first 10% and then you get to keep the rest. Not because 10% is God's and the rest is ours. That's a misunderstanding. All of it's God's. And this is where people get this messed up. So like, here, God, you can have a little and I'll have the rest. It's like, you do with your 10% what you want to do and I'll do with my 90% that I want to do. But that's not the point of the sign. The sign was we give the firstborn to remind us that all of it is God's. Okay? It's not a division. It's like one for you, nine for me. One for you, nine for me. So how does that change? Well, if you think that if I give the firstborn, then the rest is mine. Let's go with money, not because I want to talk about money more, but because I think it's the easiest one to understand. Right? If I give the first 10% of my finances to God, and then I keep the rest, if you understand that wrongly, you would think, well, here's God's 10% and here's my 90% so I could do whatever I want with my 90%. That's not what he's saying here. That's not the point of it. The point of it is you give 10% to remind yourself that the 90% God allows you to keep is also his. So when you, when you offer the firstborn, right, the rest of your children are also God's. Right? Now, if you misunderstood that, you'd be like, God gets 10%, I get 90%, I could do what I want with my 90%. But if you understand it correctly as God built into the lives of his people, you get 10%, God, as a reminder to me that 90% I am stewarding is also still yours. And I'm not going to waste it on something that would be unfit for me spending God's money on whatever. Okay? So, to bring it back to the point in Exodus 13, if consecrating the firstborn is a reminder that all of their lives belong to God, that all of their freedoms is a work of God, that every single person who was born into freedom is born into freedom because of the kindness and goodness of God, how then should we spend our lives knowing that God has allowed us to steward these moments of life that we are alive? That's the point. And that's the type of thinking that God is calling his people into as they start this new life. Okay? Now, uh, I'm going to finish here. I got a whole bunch more, but we, we didn't get close to it. I'm going to finish there because I think it's, it's plenty enough for us to think about, hey, God, do I remember my past? in the way you've called me to remember the past? Do I have a hope for the future in the way that you've called me to have a hope for the future? Does it change how I live presently at all? Can anybody tell? 
Can anybody tell that what I'm doing with my life today is a result of who I understand you to be in my past and who I hope you to be in my future? The things I've seen you do behind me and the things you've promised to do in front of me. That's who we are as a people of God. Okay, you, lots of people are like, oh, that Old Testament doesn't have anything to say to us. It seems like that's exactly where we live, right? We're people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus in our past and have a future and a hope in heaven in the future. And so we live differently today. Am I missing something here or is it exactly what we're doing? The people of God have always been a people who remembered well, who tell the story of the hope that God has in front of them and who because of that live this moment differently. And so we're going to sing. We're going to sing another song in this moment, and we're going to do it differently than we would have if we didn't remember and if we didn't have a hope. That's what worship is. That's what the Christian life is, right? The understanding of this tension between our past and our future changes who we are. Amen? Let's pray.